It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to another edition of the Game Podcast. On the show this week, we welcome back Allison Rudd, making his debut on the season's podcast. We have Mr. Matthew Syed, the two-time Olympian. And straight off the plane in Basel, where he's following the England team, it's Mr. Oli Kay. On Friday, Fabio Capello talked about how the press helped him along in his uh, uh, journey from God to monster. Um, after this 4-0 win over Bulgaria, is, he's, is his divinity coming back, Oli? Um, well, some of us didn't quite characterize him as a monster after the World Cup. You know, it, 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 we go from boom to bust in, in England, and I suppose uh, on that basis, um, he, he, he's a god again after, after Friday night. But I, I, think he, I think the same as I thought after the World Cup, that he's a very good manager who has a difficult job getting it, the best out of a fairly dysfunctional group of players. And... Friday night was excellent and uh, roll on Switzerland on Tuesday which looks a far more difficult task with uh, that dis- dysfunctional group of players having shown some of their dysfunctions again in, in the meantime Alison was, was Friday night excellent or were Bulgaria really poor? But Bulgaria uh, were slightly disappointing because I, th- I thought they showed glimpses of having the ability to at least score and um, it could have been all so different but for Joe Hart I thought he was Staggeringly good, actually, um, and at each point that he had to make a good save, they were you know it was just crucial moments, and you could the the alternative universe, the parallel universe, was there hanging over the whole night. I felt that if if Bulgaria had equalised the Wembley crowd, you'd have heard the booing more. There was just a little bit of booing, you'd have heard a lot of booing. The players who don't seem to be able to cope when things aren't going swimmingly would have. I think mate started to make poor decisions. So um, it was wafer thin, close to being another poor England performance. Um, but for Joe Hart, who I think allowed England to play with a bit of spirit and verve. Side, what was it like that? Was 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 basically the, the difference between England's success and failure down to uh, a twenty-year-old goalkeeper and not Wayne Rooney and his four assists? I think Alison makes a very good point that sometimes seemingly inconsequential things can have dramatic ramifications. Um, but having looked at the the overall culling thrust of the match, my feeling was that England were uh, emphatically superior to a very poor Bulgaria side who kept giving the ball away in their third of the pitch. But I, I totally agree about Jermaine Defoe. His instinct in front of goal 
is fantastic. He has a palpable desire to kick the ball in the back of the net. He gets into good positions. And I think he knocked them all in with his left foot, which bodes very well. The fact that Rooney was dropping off and played a very creative um, role, I thought, was was fantastic. But no, I, I think I'd probably disagree with Alison that it was wafer thin. But I do acknowledge the point that you know, something small can happen and can trigger uh, chaotically big consequences. Ali, uh, your take on Defoe, is he some kind of long-term answer or are you concerned about the fact that the guy gets hurt, that the guy is a midget, that you know, you, you, we, we kind of assumed before that Rooney liked to play off somebody who could hold the ball up, which Defoe doesn't do? Mm. Well, I, uh, look, looking at his performances for England over the past sort of 18 months or two years, he and Rooney have very rarely combined well as a, as a, as a partnership, um, certainly not the way they did the other night. And I've often felt that if you look at Rooney alongside Defoe as, as opposed to Rooney alongside Heskey, Rooney just doesn't seem to enjoy playing alongside certain players. I don't think he really hugely enjoys playing alongside Berbatov at United. Um, Heskey brought the best out of Rooney, but did it bring the best out of the team? Um, Defoe seems to, I mean, he's a fantastic finisher. He's the best finisher in the squad by, by, by some distance, I would say. He's also um, perhaps not as intelligent in what he does when England don't have the ball. He's not as good at closing down defenders. He's not as good at, you know, running into the channels, etc., occupying, stretching. Uh, what he's good at is just getting into the position, positions when uh, when his, you know, his teammates have the ball. And obviously that is the essence of being a goal scorer, but I think there will be times when... Um, Capello will look look for something different from him. Syed. I just wanted to pick up on the very interesting question about this metamorphosis in the perception of Capello. Um, And it's not just the fact that he has gone from God to Claude because we've started losing, but the way we interpret his interaction with the players is fascinating. Before the World Cup, he was treating these uh, um, players like children, banning tomato ketchup and doing all sorts of other things in terms of micromanaging their behaviour. This was construed as brilliant, absolutely fantastic, just what the players needed. During the World Cup, when results started going badly, precisely the same managerial technique was described as taking the fun out of it. It's a boot camp over there. So it's not just the fact that we reinterpret his ability as a coach, but the very same things that we were eulogising before the World Cup became terrible defects when we started losing at the World Cup. But they didn't exist before the World Cup, Matt, because he never had them in one place for long enough. You know, the the whole qualification campaign for the World Cup was sort of dipping in, dipping out. He could be as draconian as he liked with them, but he didn't have them for a night or two. But if the World it, Cup, you're there for four, well, longer than, well, no, not, not long. You could have been there for longer than four weeks. But they're, they're, they're holed up. They're holed up in a hostile environment because they didn't meet, no one liked the hotel. And then, then you find out what that tactic as a manager is really about when you've got them together. So are you saying that the that technique was a good thing before the World Cup, but because the players were away for a long time during the World Cup, it harmed their prospects? Or would you say that it wasn't really that relevant one way or the other and that we are over-interpreting on the basis of the results? Because very few people said before the World Cup, if he does that at the World Cup, it's going to screw us up. It's almost always well, hindsight. Are you, are you- 
But it's a, I, I, I would suggest, and I mean, I haven't been to a World Cup as a player, but I've been there as a journalist, and I've spoken to players who were there, that it's extremely simple. I mean, the players who go to a World Cup are making sacrifices to be there. And if they win, it's worthwhile. If they win, mm. they could live in a dungeon. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Spain well, had fine. very, very Spartan accommodations for much of the World Cup. They didn't care because they were winning and they were on their way to win the World Cup. Um, I, I, I think it's as simple as that. When you do badly, then you start talking about boredom as well. I mean, am, I, am I wrong, Ollie? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, 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 I think everybody's been right in exactly what, what they've just said. Um, I've got to say, the, the, the point that Matthew makes about um, the inconsistency in people you know, pulling him up for things that they're praising for um, before the World Cup is spot on. The thing about um, perhaps Capello needing to manage things slightly differently during the World Cup is spot on. And I think the point that Gab makes, um, you know, if, if you look at that first game, if, England, if Robert Green hadn't built the ball into his own net. England would have won the first game. They would have had their tails up for that second week in that long six days before their second game. Um, I think I think it's a question of mood, and mood is dictated by results. And you think, well, what comes first? I think going into the World Cup, the boot camp mentality wasn't really a problem. It became a problem because of the results, rather than the other way around. Big story this weekend in, in my favourite um, Sunday tabloid newspaper. <laughs> um, in fact, more than one, actually, but funny enough, it was an exclusive in, in both, which I always find <laughs> somewhat remarkable. Um, Wayne Rooney's alleged uh, um, relationship with uh, um, with a professional girlfriend, can we call her that? Um, or... <laughs> You're so quaint. Guys. Well, <laughs> what I find interesting is, um, to my understanding, and Ollie, I think you can confirm this. Um, Rooney was Rooney found out that the that these allegations were going to come out on Sunday, um, on Friday afternoon. In other words, before the Bulgaria game. Um, I'm not sure if the England staff knew at the time, but um, certainly the player himself did. And he goes out on the pitch and plays phenomenally well. And, I, and my mind goes back to John Terry when he had his little problem. And, you know, next game out he goes and he, uh, he scored uh, away from home. I think it might have been at Bolton or somewhere up north. Um, Burnley. Burnley, sorry. <laughs> Close enough, right? Um, is there something in footballers' minds that even though they get this news, which I think for most of us would be, you know, potentially, you know, earth-shattering or certainly a huge problem, they just go out on the pitch, and in the pitch they isolate themselves. No, you've, you've put your finger on it, Gab. It's because they've become these massive egos who believe everything that's written, that's good that's written about them. They are adored by mm. millions and millions of people around mm. the world. They, they, you have, imagine you have people with your name on their shirt. They're wearing your... It, goodness knows what that does to your mentality and your ego. And, and I think John Terry, as someone who's slightly older, I think he he sort of personifies it perfectly as someone who feels he's beyond normal bounds of morality. That that man does not think losing the England captaincy or having a very public affair with a teammate's girlfriend matters at all. He's 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 above it all. He's he believes he's a some sort of god figure, and that is why they can then go out and play darned well on the football pitch because they're not like you and I who worry about whether our our children are happy at school or whether our boyfriend or husband or wife or girlfriend are getting on okay in the office uh, they, they're not like us they have these monstrous well, egos I, I, I sorry, sorry, in, in, in defence of Mr Terry uh, it was a former teammate a former girlfriend and she has denied the affair took place and he hasn't spoken about it so the only 
reason we know that this supposedly happened is because the newspapers wrote about it and have not yet been sued, although legal action is, is going on. Just, uh, just to be fair about whether this, uh, whether this, this actually took place or not. Uh, Syed. Well, a couple of things. One, I have a T-shirt with Ali's name on the back of it. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, I mean, t- on the compartmentalisation, I think certain players and certain people in life just are very good at pigeonholing difficulties rather than dwelling on it and allowing it to insidiously affect how they behave at work. And I think there are certain footballers who are good at that, others probably not very good. The larger and more important question is whether it is legitimate for the newspapers to pry into the private lives of footballers. And I think there's a pretty important distinction to be made. You mentioned JT. I think, assuming it's true, that that revelation, and the News of the World must have thought it was true to publish the story, was utterly legitimate for for the following reason. Terry had had his agent send out an email uh, to potential sponsors eulogising about Terry's position as the daddy source dad of the year. In other words, he was trying to lucratively, lucratively trade on his public image as a good family man. And in those circumstances, if there is private behaviour that contradicts that public image, it is perfectly legitimate and in the public interest for it to come out. I mean, the law is... What's stand- the public interest here? Well, in, in this particular case, it's rather more difficult, which is why the law is right to say there should be an intense scrutiny, case by case, and it should be well, it's tried... Quite straightforward in the Rooney case because Rooney has gone public and sold and made money out of the fact that he slept with prostitutes in the past and he's managed to somehow dress it up as one of those <laughs> one of those things you do when you're a bit young and uh, I'm not going to do it again and it's made me a better person and I'm now devoted to my wife and he's made money from that interview how can you then go to the courts and say oh I've, I've done it again yes. and I don't want people to know this time I think that's a really good point, and that would be precisely the case that would be put by the news of the world, that he's demonstrating hypocrisy in his actions if he's trying to conceal well, information. Did, that that's, why it's in, that's why precise. it's in the paper. Um, Ollie, uh, getting back to the, the build-up to the game, I mean, on Friday, Rooney's made aware of it, maybe even earlier, but he's only new as of Friday. Um, did you guys know, was there any sense in, 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 in the camp that this was going to... This was about to come out. Was there any concern about how it might affect Rooney? No, there was. There was nothing of, uh, of that filtering out on, on on Friday. And to be honest, there's, a, there's been a bit of a conflict in terms of um, times and, and and dates in terms of information coming about about when he did know about it. Some people have said he he found out that this was going to be run on Saturday, so after the game. So I'm not sure which of those is 100% correct, but um, clearly one of them is. I, I'm, I'm more interested in his... I mean, we, we all saw how he played on, on Friday. I thought he was excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah. But how, how does he play to, tomorrow night? I mean, it, when we talk about compartmentalising, it was probably easier to put that out of, the, out of his mind on Friday before the whole enormity of the thing had sunk in, before it's splashed over the papers, etc. How easy is it to do that? In, on Tuesday night in Basel in a difficult game in a hostile atmosphere when now the whole country is talking about it you know we're talking about it here even though we'd probably rather not in some ways um, one point I wanted to uh, like a, a sad point from the game was, was seeing Michael Dawson get injured I mean obviously it's always ugly when you see players get injured on uh, on on television um, he's going to be out a couple of months it'll have an, an impact on his club side no doubt um, but just in the immediate, with Terry and Ferdinand still out, although I'm not sure we should ever mention that Ferdinand's injured because, of course, we should probably just tell you when he's fit. Um, 
what happens in central defense against Switzerland, and, and how do you feel about it, Ollie? Well, if you look at um, what Capello did on Friday night, he, he had Gary Cahill as the, as the substitute centre half on the on the back he did, on the bench. He didn't have Matthew Epson in the squad, which raised the odd eyebrow in the um, sort of press room beforehand. And then obviously Cahill had to come on for for what was you know a fairly demanding debut. I, I thought he looked um, a little uncomfortable going in there for, for that last half hour but to be honest and it won't sound charitable to say it and in circumstances I thought Dawson looked uncomfortable at times I didn't think he had a, a brilliant game prior to the injury and um, to me that central defence is a concern I, I think it was a concern before the game and although they got away with it on Friday night look at the number of good chances Bulgaria created I, I wouldn't trust them uh, as implicitly as I would Terry and Ferdinand going into this match uh, to, in, in Basel but you haven't got any choice, have you? No, no choice at all. Well, you do have a choice. You could you could play Lescott, I suppose, if you wanted to. Of course, Cahill and Jagielka, much like Lescott, weren't even at the World Cup, which makes me think that they were fifth, sixth, and seventh choice at best for Mr. Capello two months ago. All right, this week's debate goes back to uh, something we've heard many times, club v. country. Um, I, I, I'm interested in one thing, and I'm going to start with uh, something Olympian-related, so pay attention, Mr. Syed. Um, one of the ways that, uh, the, the, that this huge London 2012 was sold to um, the nation and, and the people paying the bills was, uh, look, it'll inspire everybody, it'll make us feel good, it'll make us fitter, blah, blah, blah. And I'm wondering, on, in a footballing sphere, what is more of an effect, success for the clubs or success for the for the national team if we buy that there is an equation between the success you see on television and uh, and, and, mm. and your own sort of sporting success and I want to hear from you Matthew but I want to start with Ollie Kay in Basel I think if, if, you, if you look at the, if you talk about the national psyche the national confidence as a whole I think unquestionably an England World Cup win would do far more for for national you know, um, happiness than uh, for example a Manchester United or a Liverpool or a Chelsea uh, or an Arsenal Champions League win. I mean, it, but if you if you ask the, the the people who are directly you know who, who follow those clubs, I think I think most of them would would, would rather um, their team win the Champions League. Some wouldn't, but um, but I, I think um, to answer your question, I, I think yes, there would be um, this huge um, upsurge in sort of public happiness, confidence, call it what you like, um, if England were to win a World Cup or if England. You know, or, or if Great Britain were to do fantastically well at the Olympics, but I don't think um, I don't think it is necessarily the first priority in everybody's mind. But Ollie, can I just take you back to what you said? Because that's interesting. What what proportion of I think I think everyone knows that Liverpool fans generally put Liverpool before England, just something we've always done. United but, likewise. But, but do you think do you think what proportion of Manchester United fans, bearing in mind it's not just the season ticket holders, what proportion of Manchester United fans, people who say they are Manchester United fans who are English, would prefer Man United to win the Champions League than for England to win the World Cup? What, per- what percentage terms do you think that would break down into? I've no idea. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't care to guess about, about percentages like that. I think more people, I think more, there'd be more people saying they want England to win the World Cup. Well, similarly, I, I, I don't think... I don't think you should presume that the hardcore of Manchester United support um, would feel that way. I, I think if you ask Newcastle supporters, I mean, Newcastle is 
probably a, a seen seen by some as a more patriotic city, despite the sort of Geordie nation uh, mythology. But I mean, if you ask the Newcastle fan, what would you rather do? What would you rather happen? England win the World Cup or England win the European Championship or Newcastle win a trophy for the first time since whatever it is, 43 BC. Um, <laughs> you know, these, these things matter to people. But there are fans out there who've never seen their team play in the Premier League, which might end up being a miserable experience. But England as a, as a team, I don't think it stirs the emotions of the, uh, of the whole nation like, like we wish it would. Syed. Yeah, interesting. I mean, just picking up on the the opening question. First of all, there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that either hosting an Olympic Games or any individuals being successful in an Olympic Games increases sporting participation. And neither is there any evidence that, for example, winning the Rugby World Cup increases general sporting participation. What tends to happen is that rugby just poaches from other sports, so the overall level of participation stays the same. So the argument in favour of a public subsidy is sort of massively reduced in all this stuff that we hear is is genuinely just hot air. Um, Club V Country I think when England play in the World Cup it is one of the in the Football World Cup it is one of the few genuinely shared national occasions. There are you know in a sort of liberal atomistic society there's very little that brings us together in a common cause politics divides us, religion divides us, football is one of the few things when our 11 players are playing in their England shirts on the world stage where we can pull together Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And glimpse a rather old-fashioned concept, patriotism. So I think it is very important and it's very important beyond sport in terms of our national life. Club success, I think, is different and more complex. It clearly only affects a very narrow caucus. When Manchester United win, a lot of the rest of the country, other than the United fans, are rather upset by that. So I think it's probably fair to say that the England success is going to resonate far wider than Manchester United's success or Liverpool's success or Chelsea's success. But I also think the way we relate to the success of our national team or the success of our clubs is very different. And I think the club identity is often far more complex. Well, what, what I find interesting, and, and, and I go back to you know, the, the question before between Allison and, and Ollie about what fans would rather want, what Manchester United fans would rather want. I mean, surely to some degree, whether you've experienced a success before um, matters or not. I come from a country that won two World Cups in my lifetime. <laughs> uh, y'all come from a country that probably didn't win any in your lifetimes. Um, that's, that's a compliment, by the way. 
good to us. I think it's also right. true. Um, <laughs> but it w- I mean, I, so obviously, if I'm a Manchester United fan and I've won a couple Champions Leagues in, in you know the last decade, I might say, yeah, whatever. I'm, let's win a World Cup. Let's see what that's but, like. But, but, but uh, if, if if I'm a, an you know an Arsenal fan and I've won nothing, um, then I might feel differently about it now. But, you know, I'm tempted to say that it's it's a redundant question. In other words, you can want England to win and Manchester United to win. You can want England to win and Liverpool to win. You know, why ask the question, you know, do you want England to win more than your child getting a grey day in his A-level? I mean, you know, we just want them both. But the, I think it is important. I was tempted to say that, but in actual fact, I'm not going to say that because you're right. There are sometimes conflicts. Mm. In other words, what would you prefer? Would you prefer Rooney to stop playing for England so that he compete more effectively for Manchester United or Paul Skulls, pretty relevant example at the moment. So that conflict does manifest itself in ways that can genuinely harm the prospects of one or the other. And I guess you know, so far as the club owners are concerned, they are paying the wages of these players. The, the England team is not paying the majority of the wages and so they will feel that their assets are potentially being undermined or injured in the case of Michael Dawson in ways that are directly contradictory to the financial interests of the club. Ollie? Um, I mean, just to answer that question, I think there's a feeling that at times maybe they are mutually exclusive. You know, you have to choose, English football has to choose between club success and international success. And it's clearly made a choice that club success is more important or the, or the domestic league is more important but then you look at Spain the success that they've enjoyed at, at club level as well over the, over the past decade while for the first time in you know, certainly my lifetime having a, an extremely good uh, dominant national team so it clearly can be done but if, if, if I'm looking at England's match um, in Basel as being a difficult game I see it being difficult primarily because um, you've got players like John Terry and Frank Lampard missing because they've had operations that, or resting injuries that they've played with through um, the first few uh, easy-ish Premier League games of the season. There is just not the prioritisation of, uh, of, of the national team that there would be uh, in other countries. Um, well, what's interesting there, you made an interesting analogy there with, with Spain, because actually for, for most of their history, Spain were sort of the, the byword of clubs mm. um, dominating over a nation. And there's also, of course, political uh, reasons for that with uh, with the Basques and uh, Catalonia somehow thinking, um, you know, they're a, they're a different nation. And, uh, uh, and it's about the same time, you know, their clubs whooped everybody's rear ends and Spain basically only qualified for one out of every two. Um, international competitions and then it all came together what I'm wondering about um, did this coming together was it maybe just down to the fact that you know in the case of Spain you know they had two outstanding leaders within the squad one Catalan one Castilian one from Real Madrid one from one from Barcelona who'd grown up together and decided let's keep a lid on a rivalry and let's just come together for this tournament and in reality it had nothing to do with the national psyche and by the way the guys I'm referring to are, are Xavi and uh, Iker Casillas well there's also the fact that they've probably got the most talented um, the most talented players um, in world yeah, football at the moment of many of whom play together at Barcelona and, and the guys who who augment that from, from Real Madrid and, and elsewhere you know they're, they're not um, well it is it is like watching Barcelona when yeah, you watch Spain is, yeah. isn't it and when you watch England it's not like watching Arsenal or Manchester United is it so. 
that's the difference. It's just be just one quick comment. It is so beautiful watching them play. I'm not sure that there's anything in world sport, even Roger Federer playing tennis in his pomp, that is more engaging emotionally and aesthetically than uh, Barcelona. I watched them play the other week when Iniesta, you know, the ball was punched out and he and he volleyed it um, instinctively into the back of the net. The messy chip. I mean, the fluency and intricacy of their passing is, is so joyous. It's it's incredible. Back to Club V Country. I want to throw something yep. out that I threw out to uh, to Simon Barnes, and, and he liked it. So I'm going to throw it back out to all of you. Um, when, when did you do this? This was a couple of years ago. Actually, <laughs> the conversation with Mr. Barnes. Um, in my experience, when I've run into people who have pretty strong opinions about whether they'd rather see their club side do well or whether they care about their club side more than their national team, I found a correlation. And yes, here I'm going to get all psychobabble on you, uh, Syed, which is. <laughs> People who tend to love their mothers more than their partners <laughs> tend to want their national team Freud. to do better. Freud has arrived it's in the studio. What is going on here? Whereas people who actually love their significant other more, whether it's a man or a woman or a sheep or a dog or whatever, um, those people Name tend to care more. Name and shame. Who do you know who admits to loving their mother more than their wife? I know a lot of people. Well, most single people I know, for example. You mean the ones without wives? Gabby, you're struggling. That's not true. I know. I know a lot. Maybe it's because I come from a Mediterranean culture where our mothers are very important to us. You know, but... um, I think a lot of people love their love their mums. Would well, you stand more. in the pub with a pint of lager and go, "Hello, mate, do you love your mother more than you love your missus?" It's not a load of nonsense. I'm a sensitive man. You obviously <laughs> love Mr. Schmidt more than Mr. Rudd, but so what? You know, or Mrs. Well, Rudd. Sorry, Ali. Well, I, I mean, do, do we have any, um, any any evidence of Oedipus's thoughts on on Club Free Country? <laughs> yeah, that's I, that's the question, isn't it? I, I, I the, 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 the look the, the reason the analogy. Was there, and I think the reason Barnes liked it was that you can't choose your mother. Your mother's imposed upon you the same way you can't choose your country, um, with very few exceptions. Your club, you can argue, no, well, I can't choose it because my dad took me to go and watch Scunthorpe when I was four years old. But in reality, we all know that that's not really true. We tell ourselves that we can't really choose our club, but in fact, we can. I mean, people people don't always support their local club. People don't always support the first club they saw. So in the same way you've chosen your significant other or your mate to some degree, you've sort of to some degree chosen chosen your club. But you think that's the way, I mean, you, you said that when you support a club, you often tell yourself a narrative that it was part of your identity, part, a sort of a facet of who you are. Your the dad same took way you that it. when you fall in love, you tell yourself that it was fate and blah, 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 and this is the one and so on. What a kind of fatalistic approach. I, mean, I remember reading Tony Evans's very good book about Liverpool, Far Foreign Land, and there was a line in it that I think really conveyed the essence of club uh, devotion. It was something like, and I'm going to get this totally wrong, from the moment my heart first started beating, my love for Anfield registered in my consciousness. In other words, I think the strength of the club loyalty hinges on the idea that it is central to the DNA of who you are and that it wasn't some promiscuous choice of walking into a bar and picking a club off the shelf. But he can tell himself that it was from the moment he was born, but I mean, plenty of people are born in exactly the same circumstances as Tony Evans in Liverpool and ends up supporting Everton, right? But yeah, I was I was born. I am purely English. I have no non-English ancestry. I'm English, 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 English. But I grew up supporting Italy. 
I didn't want to be English. You can ditch your nationality. Yeah, that's you want. true. Well, there that's are true. rare exceptions where there are certain point. national teams that are just so appealing <laughs> that they can't have to have co- crossover appeal. Ollie. Well, I, well, just to, if, it's, if it's confession time, I, I remember supporting Scotland uh, perhaps more than England at the 1982. Ollie, you, I tell you, that, you that's a terrible weird. admission <laughs> for the football <laughs> correspondent of the Times. Goodness me, terrible. Maybe we're going to puff that on page one tomorrow. <laughs> K support so Scotland. What I can conclude here is that both Rod and K have issues with their mothers. Uh, Syed, have you always supported England? Yeah, I think I have. And yeah. you love your mother very much. I do. More than your significant other. No, I'm not. I, this, <laughs> is a, this is a ridiculous choice that I'm having to make here on air. Absolutely but absurd. I love them in different ways. Guys. There you go. Different <laughs> ways. All right. Final thought on this club v country thing is, are you, it's been said many times, and, and sometimes when you when you go to England games and you see the banners, you might think that that there's actually a greater affinity from from lower league from fans of lower league clubs with the England team. Well, you know. there is there, there is a, there is it's not, it's not a think it's an actual physical relationship. I was at Griffin Park yesterday, and at half time. They played Vindaloo, which is one of the uh, was the ninety eight one of the ninety eight England World Cup songs, um, and they were they were playing it because England had done well, and 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 uh, Brentford wanted to be part of England's success, current success. Whereas you'd never get an England anthem played at half time at a you know big Premiership club because they don't see themselves as part of England's success. Yeah, it's completely yeah. separate. You know we are we are Arsenal, we are Chelsea, and we just focus on us and how wonderful we are and how rich we are and how we are all consuming. And you've all paid a lot of money to sit here, and we're all about blue is the colour. Whereas le- the lower down you go, fans go along. The sort of fan you get at somewhere like Griffin Park, they they are more they're equivocal, aren't they? Yeah, I love I love Brentford and I love England, and they don't see a contradiction because their players are never injured on England duty, and often it, it, it just makes means they have more people come to see them on an international weekend because because they're the ones who don't have to rest because it's international weekend, and so there's a nice relationship there. England are doing well, and they can watch their team and the England team, and it's lovely. Maybe maybe there's also an issue of um, I mean. If you're a fan of a big club, you you, you get so much um, experience and exposure to big games, big big occasions. Um, and if you're you're a supporter who goes to watch, if you're a supporter as opposed to a fan, if you go abroad, you you, you go to every game, whatever. That costs a hell of a lot of money. Whereas if you if you're a fan of a, a lower league team, it doesn't cost as much money. You don't have the foreign trips, etc. It stands to reason that you probably have more disposable income uh, to spend on uh, watching following the national team as well as probably um, more excitement to be gained from it because you're not getting your kicks elsewhere Syed I, I find this to be a peculiarly English thing in the sense that um, what tends to happen in most other countries is supporters of small clubs are equally indifferent or into the national team as supporters of big clubs the main difference is that supporters of small clubs they'll adopt a second they'll adopt a big club as their second club mm. but you don't seem to have the special relationship between sort of the, the the smaller clubs or the grassroots even for lack of a better word and the the very pinnacle of the pyramid which is which is england we saw them a big financial as well as an emotional schism that's between right. the very best and the rest yeah i think that's probably a fair point and just coming back to the, the whole club v country issue just one thing that, that i thought was relevant here is that we often think that if we can, we can either have one or the other. We can either have a successful national team or a successful league. And you made the point that Spain somehow sort of demolished.
abolishes that idea. I think we should be very, very careful of undermining the Premier League. It is one of the great free market success stories. And if we were, for example, to start banning foreign players or, or changing the way that the Premier League is structured, it could have very dangerous negative ramifications, not just for the league, not just for sport in this country, but also, I think, potentially for the national team too. I think if we had less foreign players, if it was a less strong league, that would affect the quality of our national team in a negative way. And, and there's a lot of evidence to support that. And let's not pretend that when the league was um, exactly. sort of exactly. less successful uh, commercially, etc., in, in the 80s, you know, the early 90s, etc., let's not pretend that England were, were doing brilliantly then. People Precisely. People would say, you're 96, etc., but, yeah. you know, when, when the... Um, when, when the league clubs were doing um, were doing well in the in, in the late seventies, etc. But the um, you know the, the national team wasn't qualifying for tournaments. Yeah. It's, it's you know it's it's th- th- there's no real rhyme or reason to that. It's just that uh, I think that the Premier League has become uh, sort of all-consuming, and perhaps in the minds of some of the players as well. This wraps up our club v country debate. All right, time for some quick hits, which some people insist on calling off the fence. According to the column I wrote in today's Times, transfer spending is down nearly 40% across Europe's five biggest leagues, something which Michel Platini, the UEFA boss, hailed as, quote, a return to reality. Ollie, are you surprised? And is this good for football or just good for the owners? Um, I think I think uh, it's got to be a good thing that football is is being less extravagant. If you look at the, you know, the past decade, there have been some ludicrous uh, sort of... Um, absolutely carefree inconsiderate spending at, at times and it's jeopardized clubs futures there are other issues that have jeopardized clubs futures such as ownership and dangerous ownership models but generally across the board a more sensible rational approach to uh, to transfers is a good thing much agreed and i think also transfers will come down uh, once financial fair play kicks in indeed a little detour from mr syed we've seen with the pakistan no ball scandal the havoc that fixers and gambling can wreak on sport is football entirely safe from this? Should the game be doing more to keep gambling away, keep the merchants out of the temple, so to speak? Quite. And yes, I, I think it is a massive issue. Spot fixing in particular for football and for sport. I suspect it will replace illegal doping as the biggest threat to the integrity of sport going forward. Uh, and yes, the game should be doing everything it can, although there's not a huge amount it can do about unlicensed gambling establishments colluding with players, but everything it can to get on top of it. Oh, fantastic. That's why we, we've, got, we've got bookmakers sponsoring entire leagues and teams. Wonderful. Jared Houllier is strongly linked to the Aston Villa job, either as a director of football or manager. Alison, you got to experience his body of work up close at Liverpool. Would this be a good move for the Villa? I'd like to stress I never experienced his body, although he was one of the more charming <laughs> managers I ever dealt with. He was always inter- terribly polite and courteous, and he gave me Stevie G's shirt when he would the first night that Stevie G was made captain for my birthday present so I'm very fond of Gerard Houllier uh, but he after winning five trophies in 2001 at Liverpool eventually uh, he stagnated there and he stalled at Lyon and I sort of think he suits Villa because they're not going to make top four and he'll keep them in UEFA Cup places John Toshek is expected to resign after uh, a more difficulty for Wales and um there's a remarkable suggested replacement, uh, Mr. Ryan Giggs. Uh, Ollie, can you shed more light on this startling development? Yeah, apparently um, Toshak's intention is to resign after the uh, after the October qualifiers, if not before, um, and that his intention is to recommend Ryan Giggs um, do the job, um, which to me sounds unlikely, and it also sounds to me an unlikely. Um, 
recommendation from Toshek because I, I, I remember reporting on the, the Wales team for several years when Mark Hughes was manager, and Toshek, who was out of the work out of work at the time, was telling anybody who listened that you needed uh, experience to be a national manager. He was very critical of Hughes, and uh, you can guess who he thought was the experienced manager that he short, thought should be doing the job. I think he's found it a lot more difficult than um, than. He- Super Mario Balotelli crashed his car last week and was later questioned by police who asked him why he had £5,000 in cash in his vehicle, to which he simply replied, I'm very wealthy, which he is. Matthew, is there a broader lesson to take from this? And why can't Super Mario simply carry a credit card like most rich people I know? That's a very good question. The broader lesson, I think, in all of this is carry a credit card in case you get stopped by the police and you're potentially suspected. I suppose the implication of this is suspected of wanting to buy drugs. Or the alternative is for the police not to be so suspicious. Or for footballers not to be given access to very fast cars. West Ham are bottom of the table, so David Sullivan speaks up with some very helpful comments, like questioning the commitment of the club's foreign players. Alison, Mr. Sullivan pays the bills alongside your friend Mr. Gold, but, uh, so obviously he's entitled to his opinion, but should owners be so public with the criticism? No, that's the short answer. Slightly longer. Um, if people are openly critical of players, what you do is you stick it up on the dressing room wall and you say, let's go and prove that critic wrong. And they usually play better. But if it's your own owner saying it, it's compl- that you can't do that. It's just counterproductive. So I'm struggling to find a good reason why it would work for him to do so. Well, yes, Mr. Sullivan and Mr. Gold staring a slightly dangerous path towards relegation. Something they've already experienced twice, of course, at Birmingham City. Uh, Gab, one for you. The Australian FA has used retrospective video evidence to ban two players who won penalties by diving. I thought this was the kind of thing FIFA frowned upon, so how are they getting away with it? Well, um, I think this is another example of uh, FIFA sort of contradicting itself because uh, when Scottish FA wanted to do something like that a while back, uh, they were advised not to, but then of course we had the Eduardo case. I think this is a great idea in principle, uh, and it's great that the Australian FA, a league I think most people outside Australia don't really care uh, care much about, is uh, is allowed to experiment with it. But what we found in the past when this has happened, witness Eduardo and earlier in Serie yeah, when we had these rules, it's nearly impossible to tell if somebody was actually physically had the intention to cheat. He did it just did in it time. Did it in, did it in. That's it for this week. Thanks as ever for downloading this podcast. Remember, you can get more news, views, and opinion at thetimes.co.uk. And you can also follow many of the Times writers, including yours truly, on Twitter. I'm at Marcotti. Oliver K is at Oliver K Times. Uh, there's also James Ducker, George Calkin, a whole host of them. But we'll be back next Monday when the Premiership campaign gets back underway and we'll have more guests on to pick apart the weekend's action. Till then, au revoir. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.